Futurecast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, The Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, folks. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. My guest today is Claudia Miller. Claudia, thanks for being with us today. I'm so excited to be here today, Earl. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am. I'm ecstatic to have you here and I can't wait to get in the conversation that we're going to have. I think it's a, a very timely, very relevant, very important conversation. But listeners, before we get into that, here's what I want you to know about Claudia. She is a sought after career coach for women in tech, and she's helped her clients land fulfilling jobs at senior levels. She's also partners with companies and organizations in identifying rising stars within their organizations and providing strategic insights and support in developing a leadership and talent pipeline with a focus on women and women of color. Due to her efforts, she has worked with top Fortune 500 clients, plus has partnered with, with World Business Chicago in developing a workforce development strategy in coordination with the city of Chicago's efforts to decrease unemployment rates for persons of color. She's also the creator and host of Roadmap to the Executive Suite podcast. Due to her client's success, she has been featured multiple times in Forbes, MSNBC, Thrive Global, and Business Insider. They put her in the top global list of top innovative career coaches. So it's with that background, with that wealth of knowledge and experience that I'm really excited sitting over here kind of just waiting to hear how you answer that first question that I start off all of my guests with. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I was thinking about this question because, of course, I like to be prepared and I was trying to think of it as, you know, what I do in the line of work that I do with my clients. And for me, really responsible leadership involves like three key aspects. 
And it would be integrity, accountability, and empathy. Whereas from the integrity perspective, um, responsible leaders must have integrity, which, you know, they have to be ethical, they have to be honest, and especially when it comes to their decision-making processes, especially because we've seen and we'll discuss later on how much of that impacts not only building that leadership talent pipeline, but creating that equality and diversity when it comes to leadership roles. And then for the accountability aspect of it, that's really a responsible leader will have and stay accountable for their actions and their decision-making process as well, and be willing to accept criticism and ensuring that they're being responsible knowing that they are, you know, their decisions do impact people's lives. They impact the business. So making sure that the accountability stays within that leader in itself, knowing, you know, almost like the power they have being in those roles. And then lastly, I would say empathy, um, you know, responsible leaders must have empathy. And especially when it comes to understanding and considering the needs and perspectives of others, especially when we're trying to create a very inclusive work environment, we want to create diversity within our talent pool. And really, how do we, you know, be able to connect with them and still be able to create some of these strategies um, that help overall in you know, creating that inclusive work environment, which also leads to profitability for our business. Mm. I love that. I love that. Especially that focus on empathy. And that is the one thing uh, that that I always love to to focus on on this show, being a veteran myself, talking to a lot of veterans on this show. And, and one of the things that we really have this kind of mission is to kind of upend this this Hollywood version of what military leadership is. And, you know, that, that classic like stomping, spitting, slobbering, yelling, screaming leadership. That's that's not leadership. That's there. That's usually a drill instructor that's doing it. And there's a time and place and a reason that they're doing that. But military leadership is very much centered around empathy. And we use the L word love a lot in our leadership, right? It's you don't jump on a grenade for somebody that you don't love. You you don't build that love if you don't have empathy for one another. And so when I hear that empathy uh, coming from other leaders in other fields, I always like to really uh, focus on that because it is so critical across any and all forms of leadership. Empathy is a bedrock of leadership, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It definitely is, especially when you're responsible for, you know, usually as a leader, you're responsible for many lives and or a lot of employees. Um, and like you mentioned, like being in the military or, you know, you're responsible for not only the lives of your who you're with, but also like going back home and especially for like the things they're doing. So definitely empathy is a big portion of that. Yeah. And, and even, you know, in, in the corporate world, right, we're, we're going to talk here a lot about, you know, your focus is on, on women uh, in, in the workplace. And, you know, that, that requires uh, a lot of empathy because we know uh, doing work in the DNI space, we know that it's a, a lot of men in the decision-making roles and to being able to bridge that gap to understand the issues that women are facing, you have to be able to show empathy to gain that level of understanding, to try to create these programs. And I'm really kind of curious with your experience. Let's kind of start there. Like, how do you get, when you go into an organization and they start acknowledging that maybe they've done some type of demographic study and and they realize, oh goodness, we've got 90% males 
and only 10% females or, you know, whatever their demographic turns out to be. Why is that? How do you get them to really kind of focus on, on what some of those issues are? Yeah, I think that even the data that they pull tells me a lot already. So if they just like kind of that example you gave me, well, we have 90% of leadership that are men and only 10% that are women, you know, well, let's break it down by race. Do we have that data? Do we also mm-hmm. have it by levels of leadership? Because you can have 80% of uh, 80% women workforce, but if they're all at the entry level and not in the boardroom making decisions, that also is still a problem in there. So the data itself already tells me a lot of like where some of their blind spots are and then having that understanding of, well, now that we have a full assessment of the data and what the data is telling us, you know, what are your current practices? Reviewing even job postings. Is there a lot of biases happening in the job descriptions? Where are they posting them? Like where are they trying to attract talent and what are some of their strategies for that? And then looking internally, you know, do they have a leadership talent pipeline? How do they decide promotions? Do they have concrete, like concrete and clear job performance evaluation criteria, or is it just based on like who the manager is? So knowing a lot of their practices already that they're currently doing tells me a lot to say of like where they're currently at, where there's some gaps in there and having them or giving them a full understanding of how those things impact. When we look at an organization, to be honest, like systems and processes dictate a lot of that behavior. Oh, we didn't have enough, you know, diverse candidates. Well, why didn't you have diverse candidates? Well, let's start with the job description. Where are you posting it? Oh, maybe just LinkedIn and Indeed. You know, there's other ways that we can ensure success. There's more ways on how can we attract top talent that also meets our criteria or our goal to achieve more of a diverse uh, leadership. So really in these strategies, I'm able to learn a lot more of like where they're currently at and what are some of their blind spots. Yeah. Oh, and, and you said something there that uh, is brilliant because I'm, I'm constantly shocked at, at, at how little thought goes into the job posting because you know, a lot of times we think of that as fairly boilerplate, right? It's it's the same job posting. We've used these same words for, you know, 50, 70 years, right? How could that possibly be part of the problem? But, you know, science has shown that that those the words that are used are already making decisions about who is bidding on the job, right? Yes. And I actually read this data that I really liked where it said that job descriptions with very male driven uh, words tend to women tend to deviate from applying to those roles. So if it's very like, you know, roll up your sleeves and have that hunter mentality, you know, that's very like male leaned language. And women don't usually tend to apply to those jobs. But when we keep a job description saying, you know, we're looking for a sales professional, you know, who is able to, you know, uh, you know, find new leads and still nurture current leads. When you have that language that's not very either male dominated, that doesn't discourage male candidates from applying. So why not just use that language where that way women and other ethnicities and cultures feel inclined to apply to those roles and everyone tends to apply to those roles versus using that type of language. And we're already isolating who we're trying to attract. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, and I don't know if you saw this piece of research as well, cause in, this is one of the reasons why this is important. What, what Claudia is saying here, but um, I think it was Harvard did a lot of research that showed that 
the the demographics of the panel really play into uh, who gets selected. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, duh, Earl. I mean, if it's uh, if there's a lot of men, then you're probably going to have a male selectee. But uh, they they even broke it down like the the formula they used. If I remember right, it was just it was four candidates, and they they put together three variations. One uh, one variation was it was three men one woman uh, candidate. And then the other variation was a 50, 50 split. And then the third variation uh, was three women and one uh, man uh, candidate. And what they found out was yes. And the first uh, variation was that you would suspect that the, the male candidates had about an 80% chance of being selected and the female candidate had about a 20%. So that, played out fairly well. But when you split it 50-50, the male candidate still had about a 70% chance of getting selected and the female still only had about a 30% chance of getting selected. But when it was three women on the panel and one male, the male candidate still had about a 70% chance of getting selected and the female. So there was this pattern of of, you know, the, the data is showing, and I think I maybe messed those numbers up a little bit. I'll, I'll link the the research in the show notes here. I'm trying to pull numbers out of thin air, which you're never supposed to do uh, uh, live, right? Uh, but the data showed that the more diverse the panel had, the more likely you were to pick a, a, a different candidate. Uh, and and uh, so you want the, what Claudia is saying here, you want the panel or the job description to get you a more diverse panel right off the bat, right? Correct. Yes. And even like their levels of leadership, because some of those, let's just say if it's all, you know, let's just say two men and two women, but two men have higher level roles and the two women, maybe they're like an entry level managerial position. That could also be a big factor into it of how much they can feel like they can speak up or advocate for that um, candidate. So definitely take it to the account. And I can definitely um, see that. I had not read that research, but I'll definitely have to check it out. Oh yeah. I think I butchered it terribly <laughs> there. Actually, as I was listening it back in my brain on rewind, I'll link it. And I, I highly suggest people to go and actually click the article. Cause I think I, I said it terribly there, but it, it's very eye opening research as to how the candidate pool dictates who you are going to select. And, uh, so it's, it's eye opening, but anyways, I think we've established that we need to be paying attention to how we bring people in and, and the, uh, the posting can play a big role in that, but then we got to tackle the hiring process once we get a diverse candidate, right. Or a candidacy pool. And, and that's a whole different can of worms in it. Yes. Um, definitely where, you know, depending on, I, and I've seen some of these practices happen in some organizations. Um, and for one of them, they actually, in theory, it sounds great, where for every job posting they have, 50% needs to be um, diverse. So whether it's a woman or from different cultures and backgrounds, once that 50% gets, like that quota gets hit, then let's just say that you're Earl, you're having this job posting, HR will post and they'll say, hey, we finally hit that 50% quota. Now you can get access to all the resumes so you can fill that job. But if that 50% isn't met, you don't get any of the resumes. And you're thinking, 
well, I'm just trying to fill a position. I'm sorry that there's not enough women candidates, but that doesn't, now you're delaying my hiring process. And, you know, it, this just doesn't make sense and it's impacting you negatively. And I do agree. I feel like it's the, the emphasis was there, but it wasn't executed correctly. Whereas the organization were to say, well, we need to have at least 50% of candidates coming from diverse backgrounds or genders, then what are we doing to make sure we fill that pipeline? So that way we're not delaying the hiring process, that managers are still able to go through their hiring processes and they're not being delayed three months just because there's not enough candidates. How can we fill that 50%? Are we going to all the right places? Are we going to HBCU universities? Are we going to women associations and posting these jobs? So like, there's also this other part of like, not just saying, hey, we want to do this, but how are we ensuring that we meet those goals? Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I love what you just said there, uh, going out and actively recruiting in those areas because HBCUs and, and those various organizations, like there's there's organizations aimed towards, uh, you know, Asian Americans and Pacific Islander uh, and Native Americans and uh, you know, Hispanics and African, there's so many organizations out there that if your organization is serious about this, you can go to them and say, Hey, how do we recruit your talent into our organization? And they will just roll out the red carpet for you because <laughs> nobody is coming and knocking on their door. Right. Yeah, correct. <laughs> and it's, it's almost sad when like, when you do go talk to them, like, it's like they they are so thankful that somebody is actually showing them attention. And it's almost sad to see why aren't more businesses because there is a ton of talent begging to be had. And one of the, the bright spots, if you will, of the, the pandemic talking to a lot of HR folks, the, one of the bright spots was with remote work was a lot of organizations. Uh, I was talking with a gentleman who did recruiting for, for uh, Google and he said one of the things that they were doing was they realized that they were able to target uh, some of these areas because, you know, a lot of these socially dis, uh, socioeconomic disadvantaged areas, they weren't able to, even if they recruited them and they said, hey, we've got a great job for you here in Silicon Valley, they couldn't afford to move out there, mm-hmm. even with the high salary, because they had families to take care of. This going back to the empathy piece, right? And so they would have to turn down these jobs. Well, once we went all virtual, you know, you could recruit somebody from Jackson State and they could still live in Jackson, Mississippi, and they could still make Silicon Valley salaries, which in Jackson, Mississippi is living like a king or, or queen and taking care of your town and taking care of your family. And I think that's one of the sad things with some of these return to work mandates that are coming is we're starting to see some of that pipeline close back down. And, and it's having a negative effect, right? Correct. And I would even say like two for women. I mean, since COVID happened in 2020 lockdown, I mean, mostly um, there was data that showed that women and women of color have been the most impacted negatively um, in comparison to all others. And especially right. because children had to be home, right? right? Homeschooling and virtual learning. So having that remote work also helped women that, you know, maybe they have to take a part-time job because they had responsibilities, you know, at home. Now they can work full time while still, you know, do that distance learning with their children. And it provides a lot of these more opportunities for them. Whereas beforehand they weren't able to do so just because they were limited. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and that, that that brings in the the kind of the next phase of this, right? So we've kind of talked about you know bringing more uh, female talent in, taking care of that process, but then the question comes in: Okay, now we've recruited all of these women in. What do we do with them, right? How how are organizations supposed to build the programs? Because as we talked about with the demographics, these organizations are built, you know, kind of male centric. It, it takes kind of a paradigm shift now to really uh, take care of women and foster them through their careers. And maybe some organizations don't have all of those tools in place. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would definitely say like, even once like, you know, kind of, you mentioned like we've hired women and I would say like data shows that you need to have at least 30% of women in senior leadership roles. And that includes in, you know, be part of the board as well in order to see like true change. If you really want to see that profitability aspect, and I'm a believer that, you know, having a diverse leadership, not only is the right thing to do, but it's also great for business. When 30% of women are in those senior leadership roles, there's an increase in profitability of anywhere between 10 to 15% more. There's also um, increase in patents, um, in innovation, and actually companies tend to de-risk in firm performance when you have more women in those senior leadership roles. Hmm. Unpack that a little bit. Like why? Why 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 is that? Well, this for many reasons. So when we have more senior leadership roles, for example, even for profitability, now we're bringing in a new customer segmentation that is being represented. So let's just say that, you know, talk about a car, for example. I'm I don't know anything about cars, but if we have more women in these senior leadership roles, they might say, you know what, have we thought about this when I'm taking care of my babies, you know, the car seats. I've seen this, some of the challenges that I have, what if we were to do A, B, and C? So having more of that diverse leadership creates more of that innovation. They're able to connect because various of the demographics are being represented you know, as consumers. And now they're bringing their perspectives and their real life examples. And that's just how it creates different innovations, patents. Um, they might say, you know what? Yes, we're going to install this thing, you know, in this specific product, but this is how my child may act and might do this. So now we're, we should probably think about that. And that's what helps with de-risk performance. Again, it's because now we are almost creating like in the world and consumers for the most part, it's like, you know, unless it's for a lot of the products out there, you know, there's different socioeconomic status, different race and cultures, different beliefs. So when we have that represented in senior leadership roles, then we're also almost a reflection of the consumer's Therefore, we're able to come up with more ideas that customers are going to love. Yes. Yes. Again, uh, I, I love that. That's that's something, you know, we've talked about here. You know, listeners, you, you've heard uh, me talk about this. You've heard uh, various guests. What Claudia's talking about, again, is going back to that cognitive diversity piece, bringing in people, getting those different perspectives. And and I love the way you 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 framed that. Um you know, because it's it's true, right? When you don't have those voices at the table, and I like you using the word de-risk, uh, because when you don't have those voices at the table, you do run yourself into risk of of making these major disastrous mistakes, and sometimes on a global level. Like I'm trying to remember, and maybe you remember this, Claudia. Uh, there was the uh, the company it was like maybe two years ago. Uh, that got in, in trouble for, uh, they made the sweater. It was a black sweater and they were trying to be cute. 
they had, it was like a turtleneck sweater with red lips on the turtleneck. And the idea was when your face was uh, cold, you could flip it up and like you would still have the like red lipstick showing. But when you flipped it up, it looked like blackface. Mm-hmm. Right. And they apologize. It was very apologetic. They're like, this is not what we intended. The backlash was swift, severe. They got accused of, of a lot of you know negative attention. And the point was, if you had had one African-American person on your design team, they would have looked at you and said, this is blackface. Don't do this. Yep. That would have been a right. quick discussion and move on to the next thing. <laughs> or, it, you know, it would have been a different type of versus what it, it came out to be. Yeah. And and so I like that de-risk because if you don't have those perspectives, who are you alienating? What customers are you not bringing into your 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 pipeline just by not opening up your 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 uh, your table to to more voices? Uh, so I'm a big fan of, of what you're saying there if for no other reason than that. Um well, Claudia, we're sitting here. We're about twenty-three minutes already. I can't believe we've we've gone this this far, this fast. This is just buzzed by. But uh, we need to take a quick commercial break here, pay some bills, and then we'll continue our conversation on the other side. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right, folks, we'll be right back and continue our conversation with Claudia Miller. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. All right, we are back and talking with Claudia Miller, and we've been talking a lot about uh, recruiting and creating opportunities for women in the workplace. Um, and and I want to really kind of build on where we were talking here, and I want to ask this question because I'm sure this is one of the things that you probably face a lot, right? Because a lot of organizations, and we've talked about demographics already, but they say, okay, well, I get what you're saying, Claudia, you and Earl have made a lot of good points, but you've also said, I need these 30% in my C-suite. Well, I don't have that in my organization. I can't start a hiring process and then nurture and grow and get 30% into my C-suite. That's going to take me 10, 15, 20 years to do. How can I get these people in my C-suite today? Like, how, what, what is your answer to that kind of roadblock question? Yeah, well, I would say like depending on how their leadership board is even made up, 
for example, like, um, and this is like a stat, I, I can't remember if it was 10,000 or 100,000, but I thought it was still either one, even if we were going conservative, 10,000 was significant enough. But every day, 10, 000, at least 10,000 like boomer generation um, professionals are exiting the workforce. So because of it, a lot of companies in HR are scrambling to fill a lot of those leadership roles. And because they haven't developed them, they struggle with even finding that, whether even even if they start looking externally, it's really hard to fill a lot of these roles because there is like the knowledge gap that they haven't built and been grooming for this type. So if that's depending on how their board is made, and that can be, well, maybe in the next you know five years or so, we're thinking a lot of our board members and executives are going to be retiring. Well, what, who do we have? How can we start building this leadership talent pipeline? And have it be, um, and actually have it set in place, not just saying like, hey, you know, I want to apply for this role, but really having it almost like a extra curriculum per se, where not only can you be nominated, but you can also nominate yourself. So kind of like that person that's very driven and it's okay, you know, advocating for themselves will apply. But also managers where they can nominate employees to say, you know what, I think this person has leadership qualities. Now, they're not fully there, but if they were to have someone to help them develop it, they will become really great leaders. So having kind of like almost like that application process going on, um, having them paired up with sponsors that are actually going to help them, you know, how to have a lot of these conversations, what's important for the organization And then from then on, really making sure that they're cultivating that and really making sure, and this is where the hard part really comes in, is like making sure that there's no biases around it and or unconscious biases. Because what I've seen is, you know, when a man, you know, might say something, they're called assertive, but when a woman is saying it, now they're just being pushy. Now they're Mm -hmm. being angry. So really having an understanding of, am I judging this person or what I if a woman were to say this, you know, if a man were to say it, would I consider that a leadership skill or not? And that honestly does take practice, education happening, and just having honest discussions around gender and racial bias and what is happening around it. I, that's definitely going to be one of the hard parts of this. But really because of it, like, that's how you want to start developing and really understanding that. And another way that you can also start doing is, is either having like a business resource group or an ERG group to really say like, maybe for some of these things, like you mentioned earlier, the, um, the sweater with the black face, like taking it to these BRG groups to say, Hey, we're writing this. We would really love your expertise and just get your feedback. You know, what are your thoughts on this specific product? Making sure that you kind of are adding that de-risk factor and not just having them for them to convey their opinion or you know their feedback, but also say like, actually using that is to say like that person has this leadership because they were part of the BRG group and taking that into account when considering promotions and having them move up in the career ladder. Mm. Yes. Again, I love that. I love that because, you know, with the bias piece, and this is what I, I always caution people is, is when you're having those feelings, uh, ask yourself, why, why does this thing make me feel this way? And, and if you can't come up with a reason other than, you know, because they're female, because they're black, because they're Hispanic, you know, that's a big red flag, right? If you can't come up with a, quote, business reason why you're feeling that way, it's a big red flag that that feeling is not pertinent to what's going on. 
But but the other thing, and, and I'm glad you mentioned it because this is where I was kind of really wanting to uh, kind of go next was you mentioned advocacy, and you know we 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 know that women have a hard time stereotypically have a harder time than men advocating for themselves. How do you, how do you, what advice, I should say, not how do you get, what advice do you have for women on the advocacy piece being self-advocates and, and really sitting there and saying, hey, I have these skills. I'm willing to step up into these roles. I want to advance in this agency. Yeah, if they know that they don't know how to advocate for themselves, I mean, self-advocacy is a learned skill. I mean, babies don't learn how to self-advocate. So it's something that you can learn if you haven't developed that skill set. And I mean, I'm Hispanic. So from my background, and I know there's various other backgrounds too, where, you know, we're taught to be humble, work really hard, be humble, and eventually you, you move ahead, you'll get noticed and you get promoted. That's not exactly how it works in the corporate workspace. So really being like as a individual, I'm a believer that companies need to are responsible and they need to set up systems and processes in order to do the right thing. But us as individuals need to also advocate for ourselves. And especially now because we don't have a great system where we are you know, moved into a lot of these leadership roles easily. We have to do the work. We have to learn how to advocate. What, yes, it may be uncomfortable. Yes, it may be hard, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. So really learning how to be able to sell yourself, how to be able to communicate, how to own the room. I mean, there's a lot of courses out there. There's workshops. That's one of the things that I work with my clients too is, you know, salary negotiation. How do you sell yourself the best? How do you outbeat the competition? How do you, know, really understand what is going to make me stand out and what are the hardest skills to hire for and how can I relate that to the hiring manager? So that way I am the sought after candidate. So these are strategies that can be learned. So if you know you're not good at it, then it's time to figure out how are you going to learn it? What is the best strategy for you? And what does that next step look like? Especially communicating. One of the things that I've seen and some of my clients, they've come to me saying, you know, Claudia, I keep getting passed up for promotions. And then I asked them, you know, what did you plan in place with your manager? Like, did you create a plan? Did you have this discussion? What was the verdict? And sometimes what I hear back is, I, I never talked to my manager that I wanted that promotion. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot of assumptions. How are they supposed to know? Because even from my perspective, I've worked with clients that not everyone wants to get promoted. Some of them just want to move laterally. They don't want to go into a management role or they're going from management and go, they want to go back to individual contributor role. So not everyone is seeking that promotion. So you can't assume everyone wants to get promoted and you can't assume also that your manager knows you want to get promoted. So even just having those discussions, opening up and really trying to remove all these assumptions are really going to help the individual in advancing in their careers. Yes. I, I, again, I I love what you're saying. I think you're hitting on all cylinders here. And I think that is again, going back to another piece of, of responsible leadership has taken the time to get to know your people, uh, to know who those individuals are. You, you're absolutely right. I know, uh, I I've, I've worked with people that have refused promotions because they were happy where they were. They didn't want extra responsibility. They were perfectly happy, content and comfortable where they were. And you know what? That is outstanding. I love somebody that has that level of self-awareness that realizes that if they got promoted beyond that level, that they would be miserable. 
and and there's nothing wrong with that but you have to be aware of the people who are looking for that. And, and I think that is where, again, as we look to change some of these demographics and, and the people who are, you know, kind of quote unquote in the positions of power right now, this is where I'm a big advocate for, you know, championship, right? You, you have to be a champion and you have to be aware and, and help. And, and create opportunities to, to create that upward mobility, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. And, and that takes awareness. That, that takes you being willing to pay attention, identify those talents, and being willing to put your capital, relationship capital on the line and, and say, hey, you know, this person is the best person for this opportunity. You need to consider them. Uh, and that, that to me is a big part of responsible leadership on this is, is being that level of awareness. Um, not only from the manager perspective, but even from the employee perspective, like, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen too, is like when it comes to advocating for yourself, they might say, and this is a great question because I've, I mean, even Earl, I can ask you Earl, like, what did you do four months ago? Exactly four months ago. (laughs) Uh, No clue. I honestly, I don't even know what I did four days ago. I would have to go back to my calendar just to figure that out. So when we can't remember what we did a few days ago, let alone months, how can we expect our managers to know what we've done throughout the whole 12 months? So really making sure that we're able to convey that. And that's part of self-advocacy saying, you know what, you know, in the performance reviews, Everyone should be prepared for those. And at least like when I tell my clients, you should be preparing at least a month before your performance reviews, gather all that data, making sure you're getting the metrics. So that way during the performance reviews, it could be a discussion of, Hey Earl, you know, I just wanted to give you a quick recap of what I've done these past 12 months. Um, since the beginning of, you know, this fiscal year, I've worked with this amount of partners. Here's the increase in revenue. Here's what we've done. Here's some of the challenges we overcame. Here's some of the top learning lessons and moving forward, here's what, you know, I plan on working on that. And just giving the perspective, because again, your manager is not going to know everything that you've done. And more than likely, they're going to remember what you've done recently. And if it was like a bad project that went wrong, whatever that is, that's going to be that's going to be primed in their memory most recently versus all the great things you've done throughout the whole year. So really making sure that you're prepared for that and you're saying, hey, here's everything that I've done. Yes, we currently have this, but here's how the rest of the year has looked like. That is self-advocacy. And if you're like, well, I don't like to toot my own horn. I don't want to say I'm the best. I'm not saying you have to say the best, but you just have to recap and say, here's kind of the facts. Here's the data. Here's what I've been doing. Here's my value to the organization. And that's how you're able to convey that where, you know, now we can talk about promotions. That's how you have leverage for salary negotiation conversations. That's how you can say, now I'm ready for the, you know, my next step in my career, wanted to have a conversation on, you know, what steps need to be taken in order for me to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember who it was, but uh, somebody famous once said, it's not bragging if it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. And, and here's the thing, right? And, and this is what I, I always find interesting about this conversation is, is, you know, a lot of time the imposter syndrome and this, this humility piece, you know, kind of really gets kind of hung around the, the neck of women. But this is something I struggled with. Uh, I struggled with this a lot early in my career. My, my philosophy was 
I'm doing great work. If my manager doesn't see it, that's their fault, not mine. And, and I wouldn't do these things. And I got passed up for a lot of promotions. And it wasn't until I had somebody set me down and they basically said, look, if you're not going to sell yourself, nobody else is. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I had to learn these skills that Claudia is talking about. And it, it, I, I went through that process. I felt kind of dirty in the beginning of, of, you know, being a braggart and all these things. But, it, you know, once you figure it out that you're, you're not, you're, you're telling your story, you're being your advocate, which is why I love that word. You're advocating for yourself. It's not bad. It's not dirty. You are just advocating for yourself and you should feel comfortable being your own advocate. There's nothing at all wrong with it. Do it every day as often as you can. Yeah, I would say that um, kind of to add to that really quick, Earl, I would say that I've heard this from some clients where they'll say, you know what? I hope that answer wasn't too much. I wasn't being you know, too braggy or I was tooting my horn so much. And I worked with cli- like hundreds of clients around 26 different types of industries across all levels of leadership, including VP of sales and more like every single person has not sold themselves enough. Mm-hmm. Like I have yet to come across a person that's I'm like, well, you're being a little too much. That's a little too arrogant. I have never been able to say those words to somebody because they think they're being already too much. And I'm thinking, tell me more. Like, why should I care? What are you bringing <laughs> to the organization? Because you're just starting at a very high surface level and you sound like every other candidate. So yeah, it's really about if you feel like, oh, I'm just being too much, they're going to think I'm conceited or, you know, um, that I'm the best. They're, they're not. And whatever you're saying, and promise you, especially to your listeners, you're still not saying enough. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. Well, speaking of not saying enough, I don't want to get us uh, out of here without saying enough about uh, your podcast, Roadmap to the Executive Suite. Uh, being a podcaster myself, I know the hard work and dedication it goes into uh, creating a show. Um, so, so let's talk about that for a second. Like, like, go ahead, get, give, give your sales pitch for why people should subscribe and listen to your show. What's it about, and uh, wh- why should they listen? So, I started the podcast because you know one of the things that, especially when I was in corporate workspace, so my background is in finance and healthcare and education. So when I was going, you know, in my career, I felt like there was a lot of misconceptions when it came to being a woman in a C-suite role. So when I would tell people, I want to become CEO of a hospital, they would say, you know what, you know, you're never going to have time for your family and your kids. And, you know, you're just going to have to work a lot of long hours. And there's all these other things that now that, you know, being a career coach now for nine plus years, I wanted to create a podcast that demystified everything. I wanted to be everything transparent. I bring in executive recruiters. I bring in C-suite and, you know, I give career advice to say like, here's what it really looks like. If you want to become CEO or CFO, whatever that is, let's speak to someone and let's see what that really looks like and how is it for them and how they got there if you wanted to get there. And really that's why the road to the executive suite, like if you wanted to get there. Now I know not everyone wants to be in the C-suite, but Maybe you want to become a senior director or an SVP. And that's what really the podcast is about is how do we keep advancing our careers until whatever top level you want to get there? And if it is a C-suite, here's how to get there. 
here's exactly, we're hearing it from the executive recruiters, what their process looks like, what they're looking for. And here's what it looks like. A lot of the, um, a lot of the guests that I've had in my podcast that are women in C-suite, a lot of them still get to spend more time, you know, with their kids. It's all about where you work at and what your boundaries are. But I've seen, you know, professionals that work more hours and get paid a lot less in very lower positions than some of the women that I've you know, talked to that are in those C-suite roles. So it's really about creating the transparency around there. And if you want to get there, here's that route to get there. Love it. I was going to say, spoiler alert, it's all about puppy dogs, rainbows, easy <laughs> times, and everybody just gets there as an overnight success, right? Right. No, it, it, I love it how, because a lot of them, they're like, they've been very methodical. Usually yeah. when it comes to when you're in a, a high level role like that, it doesn't happen by accident. And a lot of the people that I worked with and spoke to, spoken to, they're usually, you know, they kind of say things like, I'm, I'm, you know, I started this internship and I'm working at the company fast forward 20 years, I'm still here. And I've never, I've only been pulled for these positions, but I've never actively done anything about it. And I don't want to do that anymore. So it's, if you want to get to that high level, you have to be strategic around it. And you're just not going to happen, you know, miraculously wake up and say, Hey, you know, we would love for you to be the CEO of the organization. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Claudia, we've been chatting here for uh, a little over 40 minutes at this point, and it's been great conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, what we've discussed here so far. Uh, and I'm curious, as we work to start closing things out here, uh, is there anything we didn't get a chance to talk about? I mean, it's such a wide ranging topic. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot. Uh, but is there anything we didn't get a chance to talk about that uh, you want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? Yeah, I'd say like we definitely talked a lot about from like an organization perspective, leadership pipeline. Um, and like I mentioned, I work both with companies and organizations, but also with individuals with career coaching. Um, and one thing I have to say is I know sometimes it can sound like, especially some of your listeners that are women, like, oh, my God, it sounds like everything is stacked against us and a lot of these organizations and processes and everything around it. Uh, my advice is focus on what you can control, especially right now where we're hearing layoffs and hiring freezes happening, recession looming around, focus on what you can control. And there are always organizations that thrive in recessions, just like there are organizations that thrive during the lockdown, during COVID. So focus on that, focus on what you can control. And my belief is if the company won't promote you, go ahead and promote yourself and start looking for jobs externally. There's still a lot of organizations and companies hiring. Now you will have to stand out from the competition. But again, that's a learned skill set, whether it's with me or other career coaches, that is something you can learn to help you get to where you want to go. I love that. I think that's a valuable point to close on because, you know, I just kind of want to throw this out there as, as kind of a question because I'm curious of, of your experiences. But what I've noticed is, you know, to give a little bit of life raft of hope out there, I think a lot of organizations are starting to take these topics seriously a lot of individuals are starting to take these topics more seriously, starting to see a lot of men take this topic more seriously and be more champions. I'm starting to see more men, you know, do things like take paternity leave to show support for their spouses, starting to show more, uh, see more men take on championship roles and promote women uh, to have opportunities and championing for, uh, you know, leadership development programs geared towards women. So, and, and organizations really taking this seriously. So, uh, I'm kind of curious if you've seen the same thing to to kind of, you know, this is becoming a more 
prominent issue more organizations are and you're in and there are places to look for if your organization isn't doing it you can find an organization that is yes definitely i've definitely seen there's more visibility around it i think that's self-awareness um whereas i i actually had someone um disclose to me saying i had an employee like when it comes to my male employees like if we had, if I needed to give them feedback or something, I'll take them out for lunch and do that. But I don't know how to do that with my um, my employees that report to me that are women. Like, what am I supposed to do? And my answer was, well, do the same thing you did with the male counterparts. Like, take them out for lunch and give them feedback. So not really around like, oh, eggshells. And they could have just done nothing. But instead they said, they asked for advice. Like, how can I deal with this situation? So really, I definitely have seen that. And, you know, as more we talk about it, the more we learn, the more we hear about practices and things that we can implement. And like I said, for some of the listeners out there, they're like, well, how can I do better? Just say, if this is a man, what would I like? How would I interpret this? And that can help you say, well, then that's how I'm going to interpret for them. They're not being pushy. They're just being assertive. Yeah, love it. Love it. Well, Claudia, uh, people want to find out more about you, what you do, subscribe to your podcast, uh, maybe work with you. What's a great place for them to go look uh, to, to connect and work with you? My website is ClaudiaTMiller.com. And they also can follow me on LinkedIn, Claudia T. Miller. Um, I share a lot of free career advice in there, as well as, you know, how to build that leadership talent pipeline for your organization. Outstanding. And, and listeners, as always, I'll have those links in the show notes. Uh, highly suggest you subscribe to uh, Roadmap to the Executive Suite podcast. Add that to your rotation. Uh, you got room for my show. You got room for her show. I've got all the faith in uh, that. So, uh, Claudia, again, I just want to say thank you for doing what you're doing, for being the the voice, being the champion for this topic, uh, raising awareness and, and being... Be, being you, right? I mean, it, it's a, such an important element to what organizations are doing and the future of where they are going. And uh, just want to thank you for having a great conversation with me and my listeners today on this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadershipphalanx.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the city of angels. My IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wannabet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. 
But I like airplane. I know you do. But Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.